Um, let's all now turn our attention to Ruth chapter 1. We'll read verses 19 to 22. Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 to 22. Let's all rise, and we'll read God's word together. This is the reading of God's holy word. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the reading of God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer before we hear the preaching of God's word? Uh, God, uh, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you so much for giving to us your word. And help us, Lord, to understand what it is that you want your people to respond with. How it is that you want your people to respond. Would you open up the scriptures to us? Would you open up our eyes so that we may see Christ once more and see how good you are to us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Ruth is a story about redemption. It's a story about how God takes this broken woman, Naomi, a woman who is marred by death, a woman who is struck down by misfortune, a woman who is covered in shame because of her past. It's a story about how God takes this insignificant woman and he redeems her. God, he heals her, he renews her, and most astonishingly, God uses her to bring our Savior, Jesus, into this world. Now, for the past two weeks, we were introduced to the suffering of this woman, Naomi. Next week, we'll begin to see the actual unfolding of God's redemption in her life. But today, the passage that we have before us shows us the in-between. See, today's passage shows us what happens in between brokenness and redemption. Today's passage zooms in and shows us the state or the hopeless state of the sufferer in the aftermath of misfortune. You know, one of the things that I've been growing in appreciation for is the way in which the Bible dwells upon the state of the sufferer. See, the Bible doesn't move swiftly from suffering to redemption, just running roughshod over the sufferer. No, instead the Bible actually gives a voice to the one in pain. The Bible stops, zooms in on the sufferer, the Bible amplifies the cries of his or her heart. The Bible records his emotions, her doubts, his fears, her 
insecurities, his anxieties. It gives to people in the midst of devastation time, sufficient time to lament. You know, I mentioned that I'm growing in appreciation for this because even until a few years ago, you know, this portion of the Bible really eluded me. You know, we have parts in the Bible that record this in-between state where nothing really seems to be happening, and it's just about this person lamenting. It's just about this person, you know, expressing what he or, you know, what he or her, uh, she is thinking, what they're feeling. And whenever I would get to passages like this, I would read, okay, stop lamenting. <laughs> I, I can say that because that's my son. <laughs> um, you know, whenever I would get to passages like that, I would, I would read and think, okay, so, okay, so what's next? Whenever I would read the Psalms, I would think, all right, all right, come on, let's move on. Stop your whining, stop your whining. What's the plan here? You know, over the past few years, um, I realized that um, these passages in Scripture, it's not that these things are not important. It's not that these statements are just rudderless statements. Um, I realized that I didn't appreciate these sections of scripture because I lacked the emotional capacity to just park my heart, to just stop, to listen to the one who's grieving. I, I didn't have the capacity or the ability to grieve, to lament. I wasn't able to express true emotion without any sort of resolution at the end. You see, in the Bible, we find just a lot of uh, passages where it's just an individual just talking, lamenting, expressing emotion. And for me, whenever I would read those passages, I would think, okay, what's the resolution? Okay, let's, let's, stop. let's stop with all this emotion. Let's get to the solution. And I realized that I, I didn't quite understand those passages because I, I lacked the emotional capacity. And I would bet that some of you here, some of you uh, attending virtually, that you are that you might feel the same way. Especially men have a tendency of being emotionally detached. You know, if you look at the Bible you'll find this kind of expression everywhere. You know, one of the longest books of the Bible, the Psalms, I know we normally associate the Psalms with thanksgiving and praise, but you know, there are more lament Psalms than any other kind of Psalms. Or Job. If you look at Job, the entire book is about a man lamenting and just questioning God, and it ends without any real answer. About 42 chapters long of just this man just saying, why God, why, why is this happening? You know, who am I? And he just goes on and on and on. Or you read the prophets, it's the same thing. 
rehashing the same thing over and over again. There's even a book in the Bible called Lamentations. It's a book expressing one's pain. And of course, we have today's passage. A few verses in this very short story that record what Naomi is really feeling. And so what I want to do today, before we move on to the plot of the story, before we see, you know, redemption really unfolding, I want to stop, I want to park, and I want to dwell on what Naomi expresses here, what she's really wrestling with in her heart. Because I think we can learn a lot. We can learn a lot about ourselves and how we ought to deal with pain and suffering in our life. The first thing that we notice here that Naomi does is she decides to change her name. If you look with me, she says this. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. See, Naomi decides that she no longer wants to be called Naomi, which means pleasant. But she says, my name is Mara, and Mara means bitter. You know, names are given by parents or grandparents with the hope that the child would grow up into that name, that the child would become what that name means. And Naomi here is saying, I can no longer stand being called pleasant. Naomi is saying, no, you cannot call me pleasant anymore because that quest is over. She's saying, I failed I'm not pleasant anymore. And so what does she do? She decides to change her name to reflect what her life really is. She says, how can I be called pleasant when my life is bitter? So from now on, call me bitter. She's saying, my name doesn't match who I am. So I'm going to change my name. You know, it's like naming your son Brooklyn when you live in Pennsylvania, right? It just doesn't match. And that's what Naomi is going through. She's saying, I'm not pleasant. I'm bitter. You know, with this name change, Naomi is essentially saying, because of the things I have endured, because of my pain and my suffering, Naomi is essentially saying, my identity has changed. I'm no longer the person I once used to be. That young girl who was given a name with the hopes of becoming pleasant, she died. I am a new person. I am a new person marked and marred by suffering. My name is bitter. You know, whether you've given any serious thought to it or not, you know, the scars that we endure in life, they have a lasting impact on who we are. And if those scars become constant and frequent, if there's a pattern, a cycle of hurt, that ultimately has the effect of changing our identity, who we are. You know, recently I spoke to someone who shared with me how he grew up constantly being bullied. He was bullied so frequently, so often. At some point, this individual decided to change his identity. And that identity change started with his name. He, he went from a person who was loving and caring. And after enduring bullying so much, 
he decided, you know what, I'm no longer going to be that loving and caring person. I'm going to become hardened. I'm going to become difficult. And it started with a name change. You know, if you grew up constantly experiencing sickness, constantly enduring death, facing devastation of many kind in your family, at some point what happens is you assume a new identity. You become a new person. If you've wrestled over and over again in life with, it, with self-image issues, if you wrestled over and over with issues of insecurity, chances are at some point that overtook your life and you became a new person built around whatever defense mechanism you created. See, pain and hurt have a way of changing who we are. And we see that with Naomi. She says, I'm no longer pleasant, but my name is now bitter because that is what my life is. Second, we find that in addition to her change in her identity, Naomi, she expresses emptiness. What does she say? She says, I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. See, in addition to a change in her identity, what Naomi expresses here is emptiness. She says, I went away full, but now I am empty. You know, it's interesting that Naomi says that she left full. Because if you remember the story, what happens? She left because of a famine. She left because she had nothing, right? That's why she left. But she left with her husband and her two sons. And to Naomi, that was more than enough. That was enough for her to say, I was full. Even though it was in the middle of a famine, because she had her husband and her two sons, she says, I was full. You know, when I was young, I recall people constantly telling my mother. People would come up to my mother all the time, and she would say, and they would say to her, you are so rich. That's the literal translation of what they would say. You are so rich. And whenever I would hear that as a young child, I would think, what are you talking about? We are a poor family. We are a poor family living in government housing projects. We were on and off welfare. All of us, all, all of our siblings, we were, we were wearing hand-me-downs. You know, the most embarrassing thing, uh, the most shame that I, I faced was I would wear hand-me-downs from people who uh, was actually my age. We were the same grade, but they would hand me down clothes because I was such a skinny, malnourished kid. We would bring in furniture that people threw away. And when people would constantly tell my mom, you are so rich, I would think, what are you talking about? Later on, I learned that people considered her rich because she had four children. And now that my sister and I were married, I have three children, my sister has four, they say, you are even richer, when really, our fortunes haven't changed that much. But you know, if the opposite was true, if my mother had all the money in the world, yet no one to share it with, people would not be saying, with the same depth and the same pathos, people would not be saying, you are so rich. You see, Naomi was poor, but she had her loved ones, and that was enough for her to be full. 
But now, as we see on the other side of suffering, after having the unforgettable experience of burying her own spouse and burying her own children, she now says, I am empty. I'm empty. I once knew an elderly woman who buried her son and her grandson within a year's time. One was because of a disease, the other was because of a severe accident. And this elderly woman, she had many more children, she had many more grandchildren. She even ran a very successful business and she lived life large in one of the most expensive neighborhoods in New Jersey. But after she experienced the death of her son and her grandson, she kept uttering the words, I lost everything. I lost everything. Of course, many people made the mistake, I made the mistake too, of trying to console this elderly woman, of trying to console this grandmother with words like, look at what you still have. Look at how many children you have, how many grandchildren you have. But those words continued to fall on deaf ears, and she kept saying, I lost everything. Friends, pain and suffering has a way of depleting us. It leaves us with a sense of emptiness. You can still have a lot to look forward to in life. You can still have your successful career and many more things to fall back on. But if you lose something that is so precious to you, none of those things can console you. You feel empty. You feel hollow inside. Even our Lord Jesus, when faced with suffering and the prospect of being separated from his father, when he knew that he had to go to the cross and be separated, abandoned by his father, he felt so empty. Our Lord felt stripped of everything. That in the night, as he's praying in Gethsemane, he says, I feel like death. I feel like I want to die. This is the same Jesus who earlier said, I am the bread of life. This is the same Jesus who said, from me flows a well, a spring of everlasting life. This is the same Lord who said, whoever eats and drinks of me will never hunger and thirst. This same Lord, as he considers, as he looks to the cross and the separation that he is going to face, he's, he is depleted. He is empty. We find Naomi here because of the suffering and the pain that she faced. She feels like she has a new identity. And second, she feels empty. But third, I want you to notice what she says, who she blames. Look at what she says. These are some of her statements. She says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She says, I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. She says, the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. The Lord dealt bitterly with me. He's the one who brought me back empty. God testified against me, and he brought this on me. Those of you who've been following along will know that 
even though Naomi here, she is sincere, she is genuine, Naomi is flat out wrong. All that she faced is not the Lord's doing. It's the result of her and her husband Elimelech's bad decision making. You see, those of you who've been following along know that Naomi should not have left in the first place. She made the mistake. You see, this is one of the reasons why I really don't like passages like this, or I didn't like passages like this in the Bible. Because whenever I would read things like this, I just want to scream, like, what are you talking about? How dare you blame God for your own mistakes? I just want to shake Naomi. Say, listen, genius. First of all, you have some messed up theology. I need to fix that. I just want to shake her and say, listen, don't blame God for your own stupidity. You're not the victim here. But God is not like me. He's not like us. And it seems that God is willing to take this. I think this is the real surprising thing about Psalms of Lament, about the Psalms in general, about Job, about the prophets, even about Ruth or Naomi here. This is the real surprising thing. You know, when the prophets complain, when the psalmist complains, when Job argues his case, and here, when Naomi tries to hold God accountable, God doesn't say, what? I'm going to take you to court for defamation. God doesn't say, okay, you want to play that game? Let me list out all of your sins and all the mistakes you've made. God doesn't play the argue game. Instead, he gives them room. He gives them space to vent. He gives them time to lament. He gives them a voice to complain. He even hears their whining. He even hears and accepts their bitterness towards him. You ever see a child so angry, so frustrated, so disappointed, they're so angry and they're so upset that they run to their parents and they're flailing their arms and they're hitting them at their knees and they're crying incessantly, blaming mom and dad for their own misfortune. You ever see that? A child can't do something or he or she drops something or something breaks and what do they do? They get so angry, they just run to mom and dad and they start hitting them and blaming them. What does mom do? Does she pull the child aside and say, listen, this is your fault? No. She hugs the child even tighter. So that the arms that were flailing, she locks in so that that actually becomes an embrace. What does the father do? Well, a good father would console the child. A good father will take the blame that the child lays at his feet. And he says, yes, my son, yes. 
you know, just a few days ago, um, Brooklyn wanted to hold a box of french fries by himself. It wasn't enough that his older brother was feeding him french fries. He wanted the entire thing in his hands, right? Because that's what children want. They want full control. They want full power. So he, we, he's given this entire box. And of course, what does he do? He spills it. And almost, I mean, it was almost scripted, right? What happens when he spills it? He gets mad. Who does he get mad at? He gets mad at everyone. Everyone but himself. He gets mad at his brothers. He gets mad at his mother. Well, he didn't get mad at me because when I heard him crying, I just stayed downstairs. I knew, okay, don't come up, don't come up. But he gets mad at mom for his own mistake. And what does mommy do? She eats it. Not the french fry. She doesn't eat the french fry, but she eats the insult. She eats it. The blame, the anger, she just takes it. And mommy lovingly consoles the child. Parents, let children have their moment. And this is the truth that I think we so often forget. We are God's children. And he is our father. And in the midst of our pain and suffering, often as a result of our own stupidity, of our own sin, of our own folly, and the mistakes of those around us, even though we are enduring these things because of our own sin, we can still go to our Heavenly Father. We can even dare to call Him out. Asking questions like, why did you let me do it? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? You could have prevented it. You could have stopped me, so on and so forth. And as we lay blame at God's feet, God as a father will eat it. He will lovingly take it. He will take our flailing arms and clench us in until we embrace him. You see, God is not some dictator who can't be questioned or challenged. He's not the supreme leader of some nation who can't be questioned one iota. No. Rather, God, he is our father. And because he is our father, we can do the unthinkable. We can go before him. We can get angry at him. We can complain to him. We can ask, why, how come, how long, why me? Remember the, the question that the disciples asked Jesus? They were on a boat one day, and they were in the middle of a storm, and Jesus was sleeping. And do you remember the question that they asked Jesus? The first thing they said to him when they woke up Jesus, they said, Jesus, don't you care about us? Do you not care? I mean, the audacity of the disciples asking Jesus, don't you care? But friends, you know, I can say confidently that even these short-sighted emotions, the Lord welcomes. The Bible is the only religious text I know 
It's the only sacred scriptures I know where you'll actually find man openly challenging God. It's the only sacred scriptures that I know where man can get angry at God, where man can call God out, where man can get upset at God, lay blame at God, go before him with pent-up anger. And it's all here. It's all preserved for us to read and to know. See, this is, church, the uncomfortable truth that I really had to wrestle with. The uncomfortable truth that we can go to God for everything. We can go to God with our pain and suffering. That God gives us time to just sit. He gives us time to just park our hearts. He gives us time to lament. He gives us time to cry. He gives us time to shift blame. He gives us time to appeal, to ask questions. You know, I find that to be surprising because Scripture, this is is an ancient Near Eastern text. You know, men had certain conventions that they had to follow. David, who was the king of Israel, he had a reputation to preserve. But we find him time and time again pouring his heart out. Friends, I would like to suggest this morning that this is the way in which Scripture tells us to, how, to, how we ought to deal with the pain and the suffering and the misfortune that we face in life. This is not an alternative. If you can't find any way to deal with pain and suffering, this is what you should do. That's not what Scripture is saying. Scripture is saying, no, this is the way you should. This is the method. This is what you should do. Because if not, if we don't go before God, bare and authentic, we have a tendency of dealing with our pain and suffering in very twisted ways. For me, one of the things that I had to work out on my own was, one of the things I had to work out was, I realized that whenever I I was dealing with hardships, pain, and suffering in my life, I tried to take care of it on my own. I tried to disconnect it from my relationship with God. Because I, I reasoned, I thought to myself, well, God, you're not at fault for this. This is not your problem. This is my problem. This is my family's problem. This is something that I brought upon myself, and I don't want to bring you in on this. And I would always reason, God, I'll take care of this on my own. I don't want to bother you with this. You have a lot to worry about. Let me take care of this. And that's the way I would normally operate whenever I would deal with pain and suffering in life. And whenever I would read the scriptures, I would read the psalmist, I would read Naomi and the things that she said, I would hate, like, I would think, like, you are so self-centered. Get over yourself. I think, like, you're so blind. Can't you see it's your mistake? I would think, God, you know, God doesn't have time for a small claims court. Why are you even telling him about this? But I had to work out that all of that was pride in my heart. It was pride thinking, well, because this is self-inflicted, I can't go to God for this. When the very salvation I had 
was because of a self-inflicted sin. Yet God so graciously forgives and saves. If maybe you're not like me and, you know, prideful and trying to deal with things on your own, maybe uh, you take another approach. Maybe your pain and your suffering causes you just to be agnostic towards God. You just become indifferent. You say, you know what? I've endured so much, I'm just going to cut you out of my life. I'm no longer going to go before you. I'm no longer going to be mindful of you. My heart is going to become so hardened, so calloused that, you know what? Forget this. God, forget it. Like a teenager who's so angry at his parents that he starts to treat them like strangers. He cuts them off saying, you know what? Forget this. That's what can happen. And I think what Naomi, what Psalms, what the prophets, what scripture, what even Jesus himself teaches us, they, they, they teach us to lament. They teach us how we ought to bring our pain before the Lord. Teaches us to stop acting. You know, whenever you go to God in prayer, it's as if God is asking you, so how are you doing? And we're giving the same answer that we give to everyone. Oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Now, I think the Bible is teaching us how to grieve, how to grieve before him, how to go before him with our doubts, our worries, our fears, our insecurities. Even though those things may be a result of our own mistakes. You know, I, I want to end just by saying this. You know, uh, this form of prayer, this form of lament, this form of going before the Lord, uh, this is not counseling. Okay? This is not, I'm not suggesting you have a venting session. Okay? This isn't the, the Christian form of hot yoga, right? Where you just endure something painfully and, you just, and then when you're done, you're like, ah, oh, this is great. No, that's not what I'm suggesting. And this is not what it is. But ultimately, the Bible teaches us that going to the Lord in this way is the way in which we are healed. You see, what we find in Naomi is that ultimately, as she changes her identity, as she is so empty, as she's so bitter and angry and upset, how is it that Naomi ultimately changes? How is it that she is transformed and renewed? She's transformed and renewed through the kindness and love and the faithfulness of another person. See, Naomi didn't have the power or the ability to change herself. It had to be through a love so powerful, a grace so imaginable, unimaginable. It had to be through a kindness that was so undeserving from another person. Naomi, by herself, was unable to change herself. But we find through Boaz and through Ruth, Naomi, whose life became bitter, there's a reversal, and she is restored through another person's love. You know, the Bible doesn't promise a solution to everything in life. It doesn't promise uh, a, a solution to 
all the pain and the suffering you are doing. It doesn't promise, okay, you know what, God will solve everything and life will be back to normal. No, instead, what the Bible does is the Bible promises a Savior. It gives you Jesus. And in that exchange, as you go before the Lord and as you understand who Christ is and the love that was so powerful, a grace that was so undeserving, a kindness that is so unimagin- that was so unimaginable, when you receive this and you experience this, you realize, you know what? Like Naomi, I can be full again. You see, Scripture promised you, the gospel promised you Jesus. And with Jesus, you can become full again. So the encouragement here as we close this uh, morning is to be real before the Lord. Is to be authentic before the Lord. If there's any doubt, any fear, any worries, any anxieties, any insecurities you are dealing with, any suffering or pain that you have endured, you can take this before the Lord, and He will give you Christ. And through that, Scripture promises that you will be made whole, and you will be filled again. Would you join me in prayer at this time?